0: So, as we continue to look at these epochs of time that we're told about in Genesis 1 through 12, these ages that we can't understand without God speaking to us through them, we move forward into the idea of the creation of the first man and the first woman. But to better help you to kind of understand this, uh, concepts, objects pop into my head as, as uh, to better illustrate and understand what it is that we're trying to get at in terms of these issues of Genesis 1 through 12 being core. Like last week we talked about how culture or worldviews are, are like an onion and, and per- people's behavior, their practices are just the outer uh, shell of that. The, uh, but there's a core in the middle of it that is, is um, explained to us in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, today, I, th- I thought it'd be helpful to, to talk in terms of this nesting dolls, okay? You guys know what nesting dolls are? Uh, they're also called, uh, in Russia, they're called babushka dolls. Um, for some reason, these creep me out. I, I always have. And I was like, as I was kind of looking at different types of them on the internet and stuff, it's amazing how many different kind of nesting dolls there are on the, in the internet. Like there's, there's some that are, are uh, illustrate the human body. There's like, you know, there was a, like a circular system and then a skeletal system and then the skin, you know, and there's ones that are uh, cartoon families. Like there's nesting dolls of the whole Simpson family, you know, and, and things like that. And, and so, but what, nesting dolls help me to better understand and illustrate is is that there is an essential core that we are taught about in Genesis 1 through 2. Uh, specifically like Genesis 1 helps us to understand that we as humans are made in the image of God and like that that first nesting doll that that's what Genesis helps us to understand that that is the core of who we are and based on that we have our purpose as mankind to exercise dominion over the world to to spread God's dominion, to shine his image all over this world. And, and over that, with that at its core, as we'll understand today, there is man and woman, mankind made of man and woman, imaging God together. And that at its core helps us to understand marriage And the relationship between man and woman as they were created helps us to understand marriage. And marriage should be at the core of family and children. And family and children are at the core of our society, they are the essential building blocks of our society. Marriage between one man and one woman is intended as the fullest expression of their relationship, as we will see today. And in some ways, Genesis 1 through 2 explains to us how humanity is intended to function. And in walking with Christ, walking with Christ is intended, no matter how sinful our world is, no matter how much our world is trying to dismantle this, Walking with Christ is intended to restore us to this paradigm of how we were created to be. We're looking this morning at God's original design for men, women, and marriage. There are some challenges that I saw right off the bat in studying and preaching this passage. First, this is describing the creation of the first woman our passage this morning, and the first marriage. All of these truths that we'll see are true of the married relationship between man and woman. Some of these principles deal with relationships between men and women generally. And many of these qualities are in regard to men and women without relating to marriage. So, so there'll be times where um, it'll kind of bleed one into the other. Uh, Scripture lays much of the responsibility and the weight on men, whether married or not. It weighs much of the representation and responsibility of representing God to the earth on men. Think of Genesis 5-2 that says male and female he created them. And we've seen in Genesis 1 that, that in the image of God he created them both male and female being created in the image of God. But Genesis 5-2 says, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. that statement embodies the responsibility and the weight that is on man having been created first and women created from him. And we'll we'll see that uh, next week as well, I believe. But without God's explaining his design, we won't understand our calling and our purpose. Without God explaining his design, we won't understand how men and women are equally valuable, shining God's image. Without God explaining his design to us, we won't understand the importance of reserving sexual intimacy for marriage. We won't know which sexual desires are right and which ones should be resisted even if for a lifetime. We won't understand the importance the meaning of marriage in society and we won't understand the importance of raising children in the context of marriage without God explaining his design to us and that's what he does in Genesis 1 through 2. Bob Dylan reflected the weight of these moments within the gates of Eden in his his song written with that title. And at the close of each verse, he explains um, how the problems that he sees in the world were not there within the gates of Eden. He closes the verses with statements like, there are no kings. Inside the gates of Eden. There are no sins inside the gates of Eden. There are no trials inside the gates of Eden. And then the final verse closes with this There are no truths outside the gates of Eden. And what he's saying by that, I believe, is all of the most foundational truths of life and meaning were defined. In the Garden of Eden. And so let's look at our verses this morning. We're looking at verses 18 through 25 of Genesis 2. The creation of the first woman and the first marriage. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Nine times earlier, the term good has been used to describe everything that God's doing. Days of the creation, he saw that it was good. It was very good. Plants were good for food. Gold of that land was good. Now all of a sudden, for the first time he says, it was not good. Man was not good without woman. Because I will make a helper fit for him. all of these animals, Adam is exercising his dominion. He's exercising his authority that God has given him over them. And there was a purpose here to show that there did not exist a helper fit for him among them. And so so what's God's solution to this situation that isn't good, make it good. So it says in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You need to know that there are so many battles in our culture being waged that these verses have to do with. I can remember um, I was interviewing, uh, well it wasn't interviewing, I was, I, was, I was being hired as a youth pastor at a church in Wisconsin and um, it was kind of a Q&A, get to know the new guy type of thing and, and one of the people raised their hand and said, what is the, the, the top thing that concerns you for young people about our culture and what's going on in our culture? and i thought about it and i was thinking in terms of not just like what's the worst thing i was thinking in terms of what's the most damaging and i said i believe it's the rise of the acceptance of homosexuality this is 14 years ago and i they kind of like there was a lot of quizzical looks and somebody said why and i said because the closer you get To Genesis 1, the more more devastating the sin is to the person that's involved in it. It is a dismantling of who they are. I still believe that, and I believe we're seeing that. There are battles raging on almost every front involved with Genesis 1 and 2. Were we created? Is man any better than the animals? Is there an authoritative purpose to life? Is there any difference between men and women? Does it matter if you love someone the same gender as yourself? Is marriage just a cultural expression? Does it matter if you're sexually intimate with someone before you're married? Do children need to grow up in a two-parent, heterosexual, married home? These are questions that if you give a biblical answer, you're demeaned. Theo Hobson is a British theologian. And he describes three things that must happen for a moral revolution to come full circle. First, something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. Step one. Step two, that which was celebrated, think of marriage or heterosexuality, is condemned. That which was celebrated is (coughs) condemned. And three, which is full circle of a moral revolution, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Refuse to bake a cake and you could lose your business. How do we respond to the way that our culture is in the midst of a moral revolution that has almost come full circle? Thankfully, God's word gives us plenty of truth to live by. First, I want to challenge you from this passage, acknowledge the complementary nature of woman. Acknowledge the complementary nature of women. It says, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. When I talk about the complimentary nature of women, this doesn't mean someone who gives a lot of compliments. Okay, Some of the husbands are like, I don't see it, you know. But if, if you're thinking in that way, it, complementary means combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other. This is different than compa- combati- I'm sorry, compatible. Compatible is just not compatible, okay? Compatible means able to work together, well-suited, okay? One program might be compatible with another, meaning they don't bother each other. Complementary means one needs the other in order to function. When God talks about the woman that he will make as a helper, it's, it's talking about the one who supplies what is lacking without meaning weakness or less value. God calls himself... Israel's help or Israel's helper throughout the Old Testament. He says in Psalm thirty-three twenty, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. Hebrews thir- thirteen six uses the same word that's used in the Septuagint um, uh, here and when it says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? To be a helper is not a demeaning thing. And we must acknowledge the complementary nature of women. I I remember um, uh, we went and visited uh, Kelly's uncle Larry. I'd never met him before and stuff. He lived in this nice two-story Cape Cod house with uh, dormers on it. And he said, you'd never believe that this was a modular home. And he said, uh, because, but it came, all the pieces came on um, flatbed trucks, and they put it together with cranes. And, and he was actually talking about it's actually better than a stick-built home because it has to follow DOT regulations. But anyways, um, I digress. So think of a modular home that comes uh, in pieces, okay? And, and, and one part is the living area, and one part is the roof. You can't really function one without the other they are complementary to each other without being the same in fact if they were the same it wouldn't work and and just because one covers the other doesn't make it more important doesn't make the roof more valuable who goes up and lives in their attic But it has the responsibility of covering the other. That is the complementary nature of man and woman. So recall the three things that must happen for a moral revolution. Something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. That which is celebrated is condemned which was celebrated, is condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Oh, I've, I mentioned to you uh, last week, our uh, family loves to watch The Amazing Race. And in The Amazing Race, you have to assume that you got, you're always going to have this, the, the um, uh, kind of representative couple that are from like an alternative lifestyle. And we're sitting here watching the teams, the remaining teams sitting down at dinner kind of talking and and they never, they had never shown them talking around dinner except for this one time because these two men were celebrating their one year anniversary and you know, it's a good opportunity for discussion with the kids and stuff but here's a picture of the moral revolution, they're celebrating their one year anniversary and there's clapping around the table and then there's another couple that share how they've been dating since they were like 10 years old, and they're both virgins. And there was a united guffaw around the table. Like, why? What are you talking about? We're in the middle of a moral revolution. Men and women were created to shine God's image in a complementary way in the home, in the church, in society. There's an old term that we used to use called created order. Meaning it makes a difference in the way, it should make a difference in the way that even a church functions. So many passages in the New Testament refer back to these verses to explain how, the, how society should function, how the church should function. In, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 13, speaking about within the church, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, speaking of in that, in that culture they were dealing with. Like what was going on in the pagan temples, women wanted to stand up and prophesy right in the middle of the service and stuff. But the explanation that is given, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a reference back to the created order. These are foundational principles that are intended to be at the core of who we are as individuals, as a church, as society. And I challenge you, secondly, to value the special nature of women. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, when God described making man, it says, if you remember, it says he took dirt of the ground and it says he formed him. And the term literally means he squeezed him like a potter working with clay, okay? When it says that he made woman, it says she was, he built her. He constructed her. There's, there's almost the term of like remodeling here. God built the wife for her husband. I wonder if Adam was thinking uh, something similar to the Commodore song when he saw her. She's a brick, you know. Jeff's hitting his forehead over there. But, but that's the idea here. This, this, was, this person was made for me. This person was made from me. And this is more than just physical beauty. There's a connection here on an intellectual and emotional, a volitional, a God-likeness bearing level that was impossible for Adam and any other being on creation before God made woman. I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but it's, it's kind of, an, my phone uh, used to list Kelly as my hot wife. And I partly did it so I could creep my kids out, you know, so I could t- tell Ser- Siri, call my hot wife. And they'd be like, dad, come on. But I was really convicted by that. I changed that from my hot wife to my amazing wife. Because she's so much more than just beautiful. And she compliments me in ways that makes me something that I would never, ever be otherwise. You know, I think of that setting at that amazing race table. Here you have two guys that are compatible. But there's no completion there. There's no complementary. The way that man and woman are complementary to each other, like I said, like a house and its roof. Matthew Henry commented on God's choice of a rib to create Eve, and he postulated this way. He says, not made out of his head to top him, not of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. There's so much more about women in general that, that, that gets taken for granted. And the local church should be a place where all women are able to shine God's image with their gifts, with their talents. Do you notice in verse 22 the events, the ceremony that brings together the first marriage? God presents her to man. This is why in a traditional wedding ceremony, and that doesn't mean everybody's supposed to have it in there but this is why traditionally the pastor asks the crowd and it's the father that answers who presents this woman to this man it's based in this moment this first marriage that takes place where God presents the woman to his man and from that point forward it's Where he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In light of the moral revolution that is going on around us, I challenge you, honor the significant nature of marriage. When God says, therefore, This is a summary statement, okay? God's answering the so what question. And his answer is, everything I've told you should make a difference, people, and this is what it is. This is what it should mean, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is not a cultural practice or a legal arrangement. We have a misunderstanding in our culture that says, we don't need a piece of paper to, to show we love each other. That is the understanding in our culture. It is a dismantling of God's intention for marriage. And I want you to know because it's based on the fact that those other nesting dolls, they ain't there. There's nothing to build marriage onto. There's no understanding of what man is, how he was created, what man and woman are. First of all, honor the significance nature of marriage in understanding it as it's a covenantal union. This, describing here as leaving and cleaving is describing saying that there is to be a greater bond between man and his wife than there is with the bond of blood between man and his parents. And and this played out in the Jewish culture, even though man, uh, a husband, would take his wife and uh, typically add on to his parents' compound. But the understanding was, I am providing, I am protecting, I am bonded with my wife far beyond my parents. And this is like our, our covenantal relationship with God, which is unchanging. It uses the same word in Deuteronomy 10.20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Why don't I want to share with you something that I share with um, couples in premarital counseling. It kind of illustrates the covenant bond of marriage. Um, and, and to help them to understand that, that they're not just making a covenant between each other. There's three people involved in this covenant relationship. There, there's the covenant between each other represented by that horizontal line between man and woman. And there's a covenant that is being made, a covenant relationship that's being made between them and God. Between, because God is seeing them in the married relationship. Differently. He's seeing them as one flesh. And so it's a, it's a bond between the two people, but also between them and God. And it's no wonder that if we're called to live out our roles in marriage, in obedience to God, that we are called out of obedience to him to live in certain ways with each other as husband and wife. It's no wonder that Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Saying, I'm not saying he deserves it. I'm saying God deserves it. And in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. She's not your example of love. Christ is. And you entered into this relationship with God as well as with her. So walk with God through it. Look to him for it. And based on the covenant that's leaving and cleaving, the two shall become one flesh. It is a physical union. You ever notice scripture is strongly silent? But what happens after verse 25? And if you're looking at your Bible there, the next thing is, and the serpent was the most crafty of all the created animals. We know we have a man and his wife and they're naked and they're not ashamed about it. I don't think they were like, Let's go do some gardening. As we'll see next week, the contrast of their relationship after sin is them hiding from each other, as well as hiding from God. They'll play out the truth you don't know what you got till it's gone. And the New Testament talks to us about the the danger of breaking that oneness, that covenant. And this truth of of the physical union is referred to when, when warning against adultery. In 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 17, we're told, Or do you not know that he who is joined with the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Much of New Testament teaching draws off of Genesis 2. And what should be assumed by this, this one flesh idea, we should see that we and we should uphold marriage as a permanent, permanent union. In Matthew 19, Jesus answered some questions where he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds this, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. These are not just marriage ceremony words. This is quoting Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul advises and says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. It is to be a permanent union. Now, If you have divorce in your history, this is not intended to beat you up. Remember, the gospel is intended to restore us. And these are the type of principles from Genesis 1 and 2 that God restores about us. And sin breaks these things. Let me summarize the kind of harvest leadership understanding of the New Testament teaching on marriage and divorce. These are also things that I draw for um, couples in premarital counseling or when counseling about, about uh, marriage issues and things like that. If you could put that up there. Okay, so review again. Um, the covenant relationship is not just between man and woman. It's between man, woman, and God that they are making that covenant of marriage together. Okay, and, and so here's four situations number one being the biblical idea uh that, that that this is the genesis 2 18 through 25 uh idea that god created in option number one there okay option number two is where a man and his wife have received a note from the courts that say you're no longer married but they haven't gotten that from God. And I'm just summarizing New Testament teaching here. If you want to know a little bit more, much of this comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, which we've talked about. And, they need, and And I caution people in that situation, you need to be really careful because God may consider you still married. Number three is what happens... I believe when unrepentant um, adultery has come into the marriage. And and this is just our view on this, our opinion on this. But that from from the terminology and the way that that it's described in the New Testament, it's as if God's saying, You're not married anymore. Even though that union between the two still exists. And without repentance, that person that's been sinned against needs to prayerfully consider how to move forward with that. And really the question they should be asking is, does God consider me still married? You know what number four is? That's marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. You know, the cliffhanger movies where the guy's holding by one hand and he's got somebody else on this hand and, you know, it's like, come back next week to see what happens. You know, when he hangs there for five hours. That's not possible. This is a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, with the new, which the New Testament says don't have anything to do with it. But where one person is, is making a covenant with God, and they're trying to hold on to the, to the other person. That should not be. honor the significant nature of marriage. Can you see how the principles of marriage are based on what we are as complementary image bearers of God, as man and woman? John Paul II said, as the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live. coming back to this nesting doll idea so so we gave this idea you i hope you understand what's getting across here is that at the core of who we are is the fact that we are made in the image of god and and beyond that is the fact that man has a purpose to image god and to and to spread his dominion and beyond that is the is how and why man and woman were made as they were Rosario Butterfield said something really interesting that that made me think of this as well. She was a lesbian professor who's now a devoted Christian and and in her sanctification process, the Lord had a part of that process for her to become a wife and a mother. But she said the internal mission, the internal mission of the Bible is to transform the nature of humanity and that is why unbelievers know it is a dangerous text. What is she saying? Because the mission of the Bible today is to transform us from the inside out. To fix the core of who we thought we are. To who God created us to be. It doesn't work to mix nesting dolls from different sets. It doesn't work to just start out, okay, well, we'll just, marriage is good, you know. We'll just start there. It's empty. Without the understanding of what men and women were made to be. So while it doesn't work to hold the wrong core beliefs about men and women, the idea that there's no differences, the main the idea that childbearing is an inconvenience that just needs to be eliminated. So so I just give you some ideas of, of what our culture is doing with the sinful redesign of marriage. If you can move to the next one, Hannah. No, this is a complete reworking of how we were made to live. It doesn't work. The idea of two men in a marriage relationship, two women in a marriage relationship, you can't move from there and understand that it starts with an, a, a wrong thinking on the first core levels of what we're taught in Genesis one and two. Rosaria Butterfield says r- about her realizing the risk of hell for her lesbian unbelie- uh, for her as a lesbian unbeliever. And, and, and it, this is what I like about this. It doesn't have to do with her being a lesbian. She says, suffering in hell, not because we were gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. I counted the cost and I did not like the math. Here's another example of a sinful redesign that we have in our culture. You know what that represents? Represents the thinking, what does it matter if you have kids and then get married? Or get married and then have kids? It's just an order thing. I'm not saying people that have children together shouldn't get married, but I'm saying this is why we're seeing it not working in our society. Do you know, you would not believe statistically the likelihood of a couple getting divorced who have cohabitated together already. compared to to those that waited to live together until they were married. But understand something. There's a reason why the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. There's a reason why Romans 5 describes all the the problems that came through the first Adam when when he chose to sin. It talks about, but the second. Through the second Adam came life. Life. Jesus not only redeems us by taking our sins on the cross, offering us his righteousness, and in accepting his righteousness as our own, we gain a relationship with God and we are redeemed. He not only redeems us, he restores us. Rosario Butterfield said, my new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus I was converted not out of homosexuality, but out of, out of unbelief. And in coming to Christ, God worked on her sexuality. God worked on what her understanding of marriage, her understanding of what her purpose for life was, her understanding that, that she was a co-imager of God alongside of man. That's what he does. He restores. And he works from the inside out. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, please don't let us walk out of here with a mentality of those people, those guys, those folks out there. Lord, please allow us to see the key to our homes, the key to our relationships, the key to our purpose in life, of being based in who you are and who you made us to be. Lord God, I thank you that you remake people, that you restore us. I thank you, Father, that you give us to one another to fellowship together, to understand the value of our relationships. I pray, Father, that you would help us to present um, mindsets and relationships that are restored back to what you intended a watching world. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.